0: Hello everyone, it's June 15th, 2021. So, not only is NASA sending two missions to Venus, but ESA has one in the works as well. It's called Envision, and if you want a detailed map of the Venusian surface and a better understanding of its atmosphere, and who doesn't, this will get you one. Let's get to it and lift off! The tower. Welcome to episode 313 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, it'll be a short show today, I think. Not a whole lot happening, it seems. And no one's interested in talking about Blue Origin's uh, flight, uh, its new Shepard flight <laughs> that's coming up. Flying a couple or three, I think, like three billionaires, depending on how much Jeff's brother <laughs> makes.
1: Yeah, we. I mean, we kind of we kind of brought it up and we're just like, meh. Like, none of us felt motivated to actually write anything about it, so... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> just went okay Mm -hmm.
0: yeah it is like a good thing in that finally this thing's flying but like really it has to be what is it $28 million or something Um, yeah that's ridiculous like this this isn't going to go the way you know Blue Origin hopes if that's how much a ticket costs Mm -hmm. which I'm sure the price will come down significantly but I mean it's still several million dollars right or maybe a couple hundred thousand
2: I certainly don't think it should be a million or more like you know you're just doing a suborbital hop like that
0: yeah and that's the thing is it really doesn't seem like it I mean yes it's going to the edge of space and coming back but it, it it seems like it's the kind of thing that actually, I mean, it seems like they have a good thing going. Like, I think that New Shepard is actually a pretty good rocket and very reliable. I mean, they've tested it a lot, um, and it always works. I, I just don't see why the cost can't be brought down significantly, like much, much more. Um, and maybe this is just more of like a PR thing, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm, you
2: know. I'm sure this person's, uh, you know, paying that kind of money for the prestige. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of being the first and— uh and flying with two Bezoses, which some people two might Bezoses. think is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, so you know, that's going on.
2: <laughs> and Branson, only a few weeks later, is planning on flying. Oh, that's too. right.
0: Yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. Yeah. I would.
2: I don't know. Would you? Do you have a preference versus like with vertical or versus horizontal takeoff if you were going to do a suborbital hop?
0: I don't know if I have a preference in terms of which one would be like more fun, but I would definitely go with New Shepard. Um, I, I feel like that's safer. Um, (laughs) so
2: Um, (laughs) So,
1: like from a first principle standpoint or just knowing that. New Shepard has not yet crashed.
0: I think probably both, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Because, you know, not having a lifting body and all this and having to be dropped from a plane and it, it just seems like, you know, mm-hmm. a vertical takeoff and landing is much simpler or a vertical takeoff and then you just come down on a parachute. That actually seems safer to me. But also, yeah, because uh, Virgin Galactic hasn't had the best track record.
2: I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Even if, say, even if both, like, you could somehow just stipulate that they're both infinitely safe. Uh just the idea of how you get to orbit in in a what's called um Right now at Spaceship Two. Spaceship Two, okay. But like I don't know, just like being in that plane, but that's just kinda like I don't know, it feels like you're just like dangling on a fuselage and then you're just gonna get dropped and kind of fall down <laughs> and yeah. then a rocket's gonna ignite and then you're gonna have to yank mm-hmm. up <laughs> while wow, like, you know, have the craft pull up. Like all that. That sounds like just a such a miserable
1: Scary I mean, that sounds that sounds fun. Like that's that's a little bit uh roller coastery. But like right. I, if I'm gonna do a, a high suborbital hop, like I would like to be able to get out of my chair.
0: Oh, and you can't get out yeah, but wait a minute, but you can't get out of your chair on uh Maybe they'll let you in two? the
1: future, but so far they, they haven't really talked about it as being at least I haven't heard them talking about it as being a plus, whereas like new shepherd is all about yeah you have this you know this many minutes of uh, of microgravity and you can get out and the capsule's big enough to do forward flips and well
2: beth moses was floating around but um, that was i guess a special flight Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's pictures of her kind of just floating about.
0: I've seen concept renderings where there are people floating around the cabin, uh, and that's part of the reason why they have those big windows. I I think it's much easier, like, if you're not facing forward, if you could just turn, you know, your whole body and look out and gaze at the Earth or whatever. Um, I think that that's the idea, but yeah maybe they'll be re- restricted to their seats until they work out you know exactly how safe it actually is but yeah I would say that Virgin Galactics concept seems more thrilling but Blue Origins definitely seems safer to me <laughs> at least right. so far I don't know there's just something about not not having to get to space on a plane that just uh feels a little bit safer
1: it's it's hard to argue with parachutes,
2: isn't it? Yeah. They've been really reliable for the last, what, 70 years?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You got three of them. With a parachute, you're already falling. So, I mean, that's how it's supposed to work, you know? (laughs) You just fall at a slower (laughs) speed. (laughs) So, let's talk about Venus some more. Um, Let's talk about Envision. This is uh, the ESA spacecraft that will be adjoining the Venusian fleet. I'm not as familiar with how they classify their missions, but this one is called an M-class, so it's habitable. But uh, I don't know really what else that means beyond that. That was a Star Trek joke, by the way. So it's habitable. <laughs> well, it, t- it took me a second. I was like, "What? But Venus is th- that? Okay, that was good."
2: Yeah, my, I I I wasn't familiar with them uh, until this award because it's it's new apparently, but it's um yeah it, it sounds like it's just analogous to how uh, NASA has you know the uh, the discovery, new frontier flagship missions. So only really in the last couple of years, uh, the ESA has been doing this Cosmic Vision program, and so uh, they they have a, a much easier remember classification where it's like S is S class is small, M class is medium, and L okay. class is large. <laughs> so, yeah. But it like in terms of price cap, so yeah. So again, just analogous to those that you know we we use at NASA.
1: If it's if it's worth pointing out, some of the some of the other missions um, under Cosmic Vision uh keops i think should be fairly familiar uh solar orbiter um was the first Mm -hmm. medium mission uh and then juice uh the jupiter icy moon explorer is going to be the first of the large class uh and i'm i I love the juice mission i think it's a great uh uh, like an exciting idea and it's like a great name like yeah i I like (laughs) i like juice and so uh envision will be the the fifth medium class mission
2: although interestingly only one has flown
1: so far so far solar mm-hmm. orbiter mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they maybe got a little bit of a backlog yeah to through. so this is a an ESA mission but it's done in cooperation with nasa and we were kind of talking about before the show we're kind of like well so the fact that nasa just decided to send two missions to venus is that like was that an influence on Issa's selection here because they they were going to choose one of two missions. It was either going to be Envision or Theseus. And Dennis, you, you said you didn't really care because you weren't a big fan of uh, the data that Theseus was going to return. <laughs> you want to talk a little bit about that? Not trying to put you on the spot, just it, it'd be good to talk about what Theseus was going to do.
2: It's exciting science, but yeah, as far as astronomy goes, gamma-ray bursts are just something that I never kind of really got to jazz in jazzed about, but yeah, DCS would be specifically, uh, optimized for kind of, uh, identifying and tracking and following up on, uh, gamma ray bursts.
1: Wasn't it like real time gamma ray bursts? Like they were going to like, cause you have to do like a, a pretty large survey and they wanted to be able to like spot all of them as they happened or something like that. A large portion of them as they happened. Yeah. If
2: I remember correctly, I think they'd be able to get, um, yeah, there was some parameter space that they were going to like be able to investigate that no one else has been able to, like, it's not very useful for <laughs> this podcast, but I'm, I'm just thinking there was definitely a plot and I can't even remember what the axis was, but they definitely showed like, you know, what these is, you know, uh, what, what they predicted, uh, how many gamma ray bursts they would find and where it fell in this parameter space. And so, um, oh. oh, that's pretty cool. yeah, like, in, Yeah. 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 And, and, and in general, right. The, 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 the whole idea of like, how you, like these are right like, bursts of gamma rays that come from, you know, different, astrophysical phenomena usually collapsing stars can get you them and um but the, the thing is you need to basically uh you know slew on them very quickly and so i don't i know if this was gonna have something that had a wide field of view or what but you basically um yeah it's gonna just be a grb hunter
0: yeah i can see how that might not be as interesting i, I mean it is but would you say that you're more interested in planetary science then
2: it, exactly since since i've since I've kind of stopped doing research, I've just been more and more excited about planetary stuff than I've been about uh, astronomy. Mm. Proper, you know. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my stuff was extra uh, high, high redshift galaxies. And so, that now is kind of just like, damn, you know. I, 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 <laughs> maybe if I was a planetary scientist, I'd still be doing research. Mm. <laughs> it just seems so much cooler than faint blobs that you can... <laughs> that are just that you know what i mean And then even worse i was doing i was doing spectroscopy of faint blobs and so it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was tough very tough measurements to make
1: <laughs> so so what what is envision going to be doing for us then <laughs> right so uh the 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 one interesting thing or one of the interesting things about it is that it's also
2: a radar mapper just like uh veritas was or yeah, is, and so um, it, it uses a different band, uh, S band versus Veritas it uses the X band. So Envision would be at a little um, uh, lower frequencies, uh, but um, the radar itself actually comes from NASA, because um, like you were saying, right? This is a collaborative effort, even though it's you know uh, ultimately managed uh, by ESA. But one thing that you know the people who you know the PI and the the the, the Veritas team, you know they they were very well aware of you know envision and and their you know proposal and vice versa and so um they are you know supposed to be very complementary and that's you know if you if you look up any kind of papers on veritas or envision you'll see them talk about uh their compliment, how complementary they are to each other and so um uh, evidently veritas would do basically it sounds it sounds like veritas would get better resolution globally and regionally, but, uh, Envision can do some, uh, targeted imaging that'll go down to 10 meters as opposed to Veritas, which, uh, uh, globally, uh, would get us a 30 meter map of the whole Venusian surface, which is awesome. I don't know if you, as a proper space nerd, if you, know, I don't know if you notice anytime you try to look up a, uh, global image of Venus, right? Yeah. Uh, like a map of Venus, it's always such, poor resolution than, you know a map of mars say um or the moon this will you know basically
1: get us a much better uh imaging or much better surface topography well so so is is the resolution a function of the wavelength that they're operating like the 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 band that they're going to mm-hmm. be using using s band instead of the x band or it does it doesn't have to do with like the geometry of the instrument and it basically just zooms in farther that's a good question and i'm thinking it must be something
2: more like the latter right as as a non-radio astronomer I, you know I, 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 I it typically you know higher frequency right shorter wavelengths means uh you can basically get better resolution and but that cuts the opposite right and uh, veritas has um you know, the X band is, you know, higher frequency, but I think the, uh, I think it is, it's a matter of just how the instruments themselves are built.
1: I mean, it's, it is a synthetic aperture radar, so they probably get, uh-huh. I don't know. Um, and, and do you know, like, because they're not going to be able to do global mapping, does that just mean that they are flying lower? Like, do we know any of that kind of stuff yet?
2: I only found out some details about the, um, the targeted. uh uh, mapping that uh, Envision will do, but I don't know if it's also going to do uh, uh, a global map. Okay. Yeah, I got to admit I wasn't. Uh, and, and right, we had talked about it uh, earlier that you know, uh, David right in particular saying that you know you were, or, or was it you Ben that was saying you're familiar with Theseus, but I uh, uh-huh. hadn't really heard of Envision. Uh-huh. You know, and I, yeah. and so that's why Envision snuck up on me as well. Um, it really <laughs> I only kind of learned about it after uh, uh, Veritas and Da Vinci Plus were given the uh, the Discovery Awards you know, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, okay, so Visar uh, on Veritas is also synthetic aperture, so it's not like, you know, there's a, it's not like they're using the inherent flexibility of synthetic aperture. They, they must be just very different instruments.
2: Yeah, and I'm thinking, and it sounds like Envision, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm not seeing where they talk about Envision wanting to do a lot of global mapping. It might be that Envision is like the, is like is like a high-rise you know, uh, compared to, uh, you know, earlier Mars missions that kind of did lower resolution mapping of the entire Martian surface, right? Because high rise, right, that's only mapped a couple percent of Mars, you know what I mean? But it's exquisite yeah. detail what it does map.
1: Yeah, so I, I wonder if it might have to do with the vertical resolution, the altitude resolution. Maybe VENSAR, the Venus Synthetic Aperture on Board and has really good uh, latitude-longitude uh, resolution, but poor height, like altitude resolution. Whereas um, Visar uh, on Veritas is really, really accurate uh, in the vertical direction, but not so accurate in the horizontal direction.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say Veritas uh, does have um, really, really
1: good altitude resolution. Yeah, so you're right a centimeter that. and a half, according to the Wikipedia article, which is insane. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, a centimeter and a half through the Venusian atmosphere is like, like that's that's really cool. Like for for a surface yeah. that we literally can't see in uh the visible range. Like it it that's that's pretty right. cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised because the S band you said is a is a lower frequency than the X band. I always forget that. And so it seems like the the longer wavelength might be worse at uh, resolving altitude differences, I mean obviously, yeah, yeah i don't know <laughs> I, i'm I'm really bad at guessing about instruments
2: yeah radio radio is a whole whole different beast than sure. optical <laughs> still very exciting though, and another thing that works too in terms of them being complementary to each other is the timeline, right uh, basically, uh, Veritas will be there and taking data sooner, and then envision is going to come later. And take data and so you'll be able to do kind of long baseline you know temporal baseline you know s- comparison studies probably between the mm. two and that could be very useful because right among different things is you know is there still active volcanism on venus there's not plate tectonics like we know them but like maybe there's you know signs that there there were at some point you know <laughs> or or hell maybe there even are so like the, the, a lot of it is going to be like kind of like you know this difference in comparison imaging over different years
1: so that's that's only one instrument on board and and the vehicle's got three different instruments um the next one is uh the venus subsurface radar sounder and uh, i can tell that my coffee hadn't kicked in when i read this because i went wait they're gonna they're gonna do a subsurface probe they're gonna put something on the surface and then dig (laughs) no 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 radar (laughs) should have clued me into that and so that's uh yeah, ground penetrating radar. They can look for like buried craters and mm-hmm. like subsurface lava flows. I'm I'm assuming this would be uh cooled lava, right? There, is there still molten like magma on Venus? I don't even know what the interior of Venus looks like.
2: There could be. I think that's one of the kind of the big questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because right, yeah, when they refer to like if you talk about a lava flow, then you're talking about molten rock uh, as opposed to just you know hot rock that can still flow slowly over yeah. like geologic time scales. <laughs> lava flows are like, yeah, you'd actually see it moving. So so this would be very close to the surface, my understanding,
1: right. yeah, it would have to be. So we don't even know Venus's moment of inertia very well, which is oh, crazy. Don't get me started. there's there
2: I, <laughs> I watched a couple talks. Uh, in the past couple of months, Green Bank Observatory does this wonderful, has been doing a wonderful webinar series for the last uh, maybe year or so, um, you know, or at least, you know, in the pandemic world. And uh, they basically use, um, I think it was a, a very long baseline interferometry from Earth to try to measure Venus's moment of inertia. And I think a big part of why they got different, Different, uh, previous studies got different values is that it's not fixed because mm-hmm. it depends on the motion of the atmosphere can affect the overall moment of inertia of the planet itself. That yeah, happens on much. Earth to a small extent. I didn't realize that. If it, like, when, if, if, you know, if the Earth's winds predominantly change eastward to westward, that'll actually affect the Earth's rotation. That's, um, very much smaller value, but on Venus, um, it's big enough. I, I, it's big enough to kind of like be wow uh, noticeable but let me yeah, um, i mean it's a dense I, I tweeted atmosphere, about but... this it's 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 so good let me see if i could I'll, give me 1 yeah, minute yeah, and if yeah. i can't find it in a minute then um, <laughs> but otherwise it would be a great talk to give a shout out to
0: i hadn't thought about the atmosphere as being a hindrance there because i was trying to think like how could you not know the moment of inertia right yeah. we know we i think we have a pretty good uh, idea of its mass and its size and its rotation and its everything so it's like but I guess with the atmosphere being as heavy and, you know, fluid as it is, it's like sloshing around on the surface kind of, you know, affecting.
1: Oh yeah, here we go. Jean-Luc Margot. That sounds like it's right. Here we go. Oh yeah, I mean, he did he did work at Goldstone. Yeah. It's it's and then
2: here here's the 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 talk that he gave, but like it's 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 understandable. It's super interesting and the one uh the actual uh, paper on archive the so the really interesting figure like he explains how they do it uh, measurements of the instantaneous spin period of Venus are all over the map and they're thinking it's because basically you know you know it, it might just literally be the atmosphere it means that mm. it changes depending on when you're actually observing it <laughs> and that there's hints of a of a like a diurnal effect so basically in the daytime you know it speeds up and nighttime mm. slows down or vice versa which remember right Venus takes longer to rotate once than it takes to orbit the sun so it's like 270 day earth day day on venus (laughs) anyway that's that's a really cool talk uh, to check out if you want
1: i mean that that's a that's a fairly tall bell curve but i mean the the greatest value is still just just under 20 percent probability (laughs) it's 20 minutes
2: or so is kind of the, the 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 range, which which you know over the course of you know, two uh, hundred and you know forty some day you know year basically, it's like not much, but that's still that's you know that's, something that's, that's you can grasp in human terms. The, yeah. The, the spin period, you know, of Venus changes by like twenty minutes. <laughs>
0: that I mean, that does seem like a lot to me, actually. <laughs> right.
2: That effect on Earth, I think, is like a fraction of like some small fraction of a second
0: or something. Mm-hmm. You know, of course. So basically, the moment of inertia, in some sense, kind of is it's not. That it's not known. Known, it's just that it changes.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. Exactly. Cool. Well, that that was a fun little uh, planetary science tidbit to to slip in. Okay, and then the uh, the final uh, instrument on Envision is VenSpec, the Venus spectroscopy suite, and it, that's just doing like atmospheric composition, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> high, extremely high resolution atmospheric measurements. And it's going to monitor sulfured minor species as well as the mysterious UV absorber in the Venusian upper clouds. So sulfured minor species, that's got to be like a volcanic activity thing, right? Uh, temporal variations in surface temperatures and tropospheric concentrations of volcanic gases indicative of volcanic eruptions. So yeah, so oh. they can, yeah, cool. That's going to be some exciting news if they catch vulcan- volcanoes happening, like just you smell it in the atmosphere. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> I don't think you'd want to smell the atmosphere to begin with, but.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. That's why that's why we're paying a spacecraft to do it for us. Um, and then before we leave this segment, Planetary.org, the Planetary Society, put up a, a cool blog post on DaVinci Plus and Veritas uh, that I wanted hmm. to point out. There will be a link in the show notes. Um, we talked a lot about it. Well, we talked about the missions to, to a good extent last week and so uh the planetary society write-ups are always so good so uh, I've got a link to that in the show notes if you want to go uh, learn more about some of the other vehicles going to Venus in the next uh the next couple of years here uh speaking of which I guess when, when is uh when is envision planning to launch did we talk about that
2: yeah no nah, but yeah so it's it's a while there, there there's a, a few while. different windows they're looking at but essentially, uh, it might be as late as like you know twenty thirty one or so. and then the uh, orbital insertion wouldn't be for probably three years after that.
1: Okay, so next couple of years was exactly the wrong sentence to use. Uh, but, but in the in the next decade.
0: Okay, well, now we're moving on to short and sweet this week in just a three, as per usual. So, Dennis, what is the first one?
2: First commercial deep space antenna begins official operations in the U.K. After months of testing with ESA's Mars Express orbiter, the Goonhilly 6 antenna has been reconfigured for deep space communication. Located in Cornwall, U.K., existing infrastructure was repurposed to upgrade the antenna, replacing motors, gearboxes, and the entire communication system. The 32-meter dish is now capable of connecting to ESA's mission control, as well as sending communications directly to Mars, cis-lunar Space, and the L1 and L2 Lagrange points. Goonhilly 6 is the first in a planned network of commercial deep space communication centers around the globe. Hmm. be communicating to uh, Envision. <laughs> Who <knows? Yeah.
0: laughs> And then next up, Relativity goes reusable. Relativity Space has raised an additional $650 million and they plan on putting most of it to use developing Terran R, a new medium-lift vehicle with a max Leo payload of 20,000 kilograms. The vehicle will be, no surprise, 3D printed and will feature seven Eon R engines, a Pathfinder of which was test fired earlier this year and one Eon back engine heard tim ellis there won't be a part that's not reusable on this vehicle and it appears he's not kidding renders include a starship style upper stage with two stubby lifting body extensions at the tail end the vehicle is hoped to fly as early as 2024
1: all right finally uh two hls contracts are one step closer The Senate has voted to pass a bill that adds funding for DARPA and NSF, but also includes funding and directions for NASA. If this bill passes the House, NASA will be required to select a second HLS vehicle within 30 days. More importantly, they'll have the money to do so. The bill, called the U.S. Innovation and Competitiveness Act, also includes $10 billion authorized, though not yet appropriated, for HLS spending over the next five years.
0: Okay, so this week in Spaceflight History, um, we have a bunch of winners here. We have someone who I don't think we've ever had a guest from before, uh, whose name is Bill Boabob. Yeah, so Bill Boabob, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um apparently it's kind of like a tree, but not exactly.
1: Yeah, it's it's spelled <laughs> it's spelled like the like the Boabab tree, but with the O and the A swapped, which I think is either it either means that it's a real last name or it means that it's a very clever uh, Google booster. Yeah. One of my one of my common usernames is Hapax legomena, but I swapped a vowel out because I wanted it to be Googleable.
0: And I think that Bill Boabab was the first guess actually. I I'm pretty sure about that. So congratulations on being the very first. Uh, and then we have Ben Hallert, Deskin Miller, Peter McMally, Kyle, Kristen Lowe, and the Greek. So lots of winners. And I think that those were all the guesses, too. So we had all guesses as correct guesses. Uh, so mm-hmm. the clue was it was the longest day. Ten minutes later, it was the shortest. Yeah. And so this clue was not really about anything other than the time that the mission was launched. So, <laughs> so this clue refers to the launch of STS-57, which was the launch of Endeavor on June 21st, 1993. So, yeah, June 21st, the summer solstice, although I think it can fluctuate right between 21st and 22nd, I think or 20th and 21st, one of those two. But yeah, so it launched on the longest day, and then 10 minutes later, or just slightly short of that, it was in orbit, which obviously is the shortest day that you could possibly have. So yeah, there's your clever clue. (laughs) So this was commanded by Ronald Grabe, who was an astronaut I'm not very familiar with, but he did command one other shuttle mission, and he was um, a pilot for two others. Those four were the total that he had flown. The pilot was Brian Duffy, and then there were four mission specialists. Uh, there was David Lowe, and Nancy Sherlock, Peter Wisoff, and Janice Foss. Yeah, so not quite the full seven crew, I guess, but... So yeah, there was like, I guess, two big events on this particular mission or two main things. And the first one was that this was the inaugural flight of SpaceHab. And I yeah. know we've talked about that a lot. This was launched as a single module. So there's a single module, the double module, the logistics double module. There's um, quite a few different variants. But this was the single module. And just that alone, uh, that actually doubled the mid storage capacity and increased it by 1,100 cubic feet. Now, I think it's interesting that they call it the mid storage capacity because... Or that this is even, like, located on the mid-deck, which it is, but I always think of the mid-deck as being part of the shuttle itself. Um, and this is, you know, in the payload bay. But uh, it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, they consider it to be part of the mid-deck.
1: Oh, that is interesting.
0: Just kind of like an extension onto a certain floor on the space shuttle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I guess common atmosphere.
0: Yeah, you can just go down that little, um, you know, extension tube and get in there. So it's, I guess it is a deck, Yeah. You know? um, and I guess would that mean that the payload bay is on the mid-deck? Again, I never think of it like that.
2: Yeah, that's some weird uh, – because I think um, – I mean, just uh, the other uh, week when I, I think it mentioned a uh, how in a space lab, some of the payloads that were manis- manifested on the space lab were referred to as mid-deck experiments, even though they were mm-hmm. in the payload bay, you know, again, like a you know, space lab and space hab. Basically, look the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they actually they're very common. I mean, or they they actually have a lot in common because Spacehab, mm-hmm. you know, actually borrowed a lot from SpaceLab.
2: It's the successor, right?
0: Yeah. So there were twenty two experiments that were carried out on Spacehab, and I'm you know I'm not going to go into all of them. Obviously, I just wanted to point out a few <laughs> key ones. There was actually um, the zero g body posture experiment, or this was more like I guess just like research. I don't know how to put it, but they pretty much just took photos of the crew in a relaxed position um, towards the beginning of the mission and then towards the end and you know this was meant to kind of figure out exactly how a human's rest in zero g i think as most people know it kind of looks like you're you know like your knees come up kind of like you're sitting and then your arms come up and your elbows you know extend outward Um, and that is your zero g relaxed position the idea was to incorporate or to take that into account when designing future space vehicles i guess if you needed to you know doing some work like over a long period of time you could be in a comfortable position kind of like sitting but not sitting you could just have your legs out in front of you what's also interesting is that your head comes down slightly so you kind of like go into a semi-fetal position
1: it looks really comfortable doesn't it?
0: it does it looks weird to me but it does look really comfortable like that's how a person would want to be you know but um, and of course uh, there was also crystal growth experiments done because it wouldn't be a shuttle mission if you didn't do crystal growth I feel like every single one it does seem to me that they all involve crystal growth Like you can't not do that, you know, like that's a requirement. (laughs) It really does. And there was also some wastewater recycling stuff that was done. And then there was also a FAIR, which was the fluid acquisition and resupply experiment. And this was kind of a, you know, very modest experiment that was done to see how like fluid transfer could be done in zero G. Uh, And this was, uh, you know, like with the hopes of maybe one day doing on orbit refueling, things like that. But the experiment was pretty simple. So Duffy and Wizoff just had these uh, two transparent, like volumes of liquid. They were connected by a tube, and they transferred from one to the other by firing the shuttle's maneuvering jets, and that's how Mm. they move the fuel. So pretty much kind of like what you would expect with something like Starship, or at least, you know, that's the idea. You just get a little bit of forward momentum, and then you could push all that fuel to one end. The idea was to do it without creating bubbles, actually. Uh, I don't know how successful they were. Yeah, yeah, I guess you don't want bubbles in that transfer.
1: I mean, two-foot diameter transparent tanks, like that that just sounds interesting to me <laughs> I'm a very particular <laughs> kind of person I think
0: <laughs> but the other big thing um, was on this mission they had to retrieve Eureka which was the European retrievable carrier so this is a pretty cool satellite and at the time I think it was the largest satellite that was launched by ESA um, of course that was eclipsed by um, uh, whatchamacallit Envysat <laughs> yeah EnvySat, A past This Week in Space Light history <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah pretty big satellite and what's so cool about this one is that this one was meant to be brought back to Earth, which is something that doesn't happen too often with satellites. So this was a 4,200 kilogram satellite and uh, it too had a bunch of experiments, 15 in total. I believe, I'm pretty sure, one of which was crystal growth because again, you can't not do that (laughs) in space at least. So this was actually stabilized by both magnetic torque and a coal gas nitrogen reaction control assembly, which I thought was kind of neat. And it was launched the previous year aboard Atlantis um, on STS-46 and it was meant to be launched four more times. But that was canceled. So they would put the thing up there, do their experiments, bring it back, take off the old experiments, and then, you know, like load some new ones mm-hmm. and then relaunch. But uh, for whatever reason, that was canceled, probably just due to cost. But um, it, it's a pretty cool satellite. And it, so, yeah, it kind of has these modular cells where you can just, you know, like swap out various experiments. But it also has some pretty interesting equipment. It had WATCH, that was a wide angle telescope for cosmic hard X rays. Pretty good acronym. And uh, this one, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know much about. Uh, you know cosmic hard x-rays and what it takes to detect them but it had a 65 degree range which is like one quarter of the sky so that's kind of a lot and it detected 19 cosmic gamma ray bursts which as we now know is something that does not interest dennis but um (laughs) still pretty good research there
1: grbs are great i just like venus more okay yeah (laughs) That sounds like a don't at me clarification. (laughs) I don't need to burn bridges.
0: (laughs) But I can kind of see what you mean because it seems like this is stuff that, you know, has been done for a long time as we can see, but we don't know like nearly as much about things like, you know, the surface of Venus and, you know, like our own solar system really. But uh, yeah, but they were able to localize these bursts to within one degree. And I don't know how astounding that is, but considering that it was, you know, a 65 degree range uh, and they can still get that level of accuracy, I thought that was kind of interesting, but I don't know how to really contextualize that. Yeah, so this satellite was, you know, brought back and it was put in a a museum in uh, Lucerne, Switzerland. But what's so interesting and strange is that they actually brought it back to a lab in 2016. So this is like many decades later to do x-ray scans to determine how the 11 months on orbit had affected it. There was definitely some delamination of paint. There was, you know, some outgassing and, you know, just like, you know, some discoloration. But they also found a lot of micrometeoroid holes and impacts. 1,000 alone or somewhere around there just on the solar panels. On the rest of the body, they were all over the place as well. And I think that that really gave them a good idea of just how dirty space could be because up until then, I don't know what had been on orbit for that long and then brought back. This was like one of the first times that they were able to really get data on that. But I imagine it would require a lot of, you know, refurbishment and repair before they refluid, you know, at least the solar panels, which I guess they would have done anyway. Um, But yeah, this thing took a lot of little hits, but, you know, like nothing that affected uh, the satellite in any like negative way. Yeah, so let's talk about the retrieval. So this satellite was put in orbit, as I said, the previous year aboard STS-46. They deployed it in about a 420-kilometer orbit and then from there, the satellite used uh, four hydrazine thrusters to boost its itself to a higher orbit of 508 kilometers. So, of course, it has to bring itself back down uh, in order to be retrieved by the shuttle. Uh, so, it had just enough hydrazine to do that particular maneuver twice to go back up and then come back down again. Uh, so, at that point, it would have to be brought back. Uh, if not, it would be left in an, in an unusable orbit. Two Michelin specialists, Lowe and Wizoff, uh, they performed an EVA to retrieve the satellite. Uh, first, they actually used Canadarm to bring it down into the shuttle bay, but they had a little bit of an issue. The the solar arrays have to retract because this thing is something like 20 meters, I believe, um, in total length. So it's obviously big, and they obviously need to get those solar arrays back in. And the satellite had no problem doing that on its own, uh, but it couldn't latch down its dual antennas. And there was a flight rule that said that you couldn't bring it into the shuttle bay before those antennas were latched down. Uh, but they actually waived that rule. They brought it in uh, with Canadarm, and then from there, that's when uh, they did the EVA. And uh, Lowe, uh, who was positioned. Um, Positioned at the end of Canadarm uh, in a foot restraint, um, he was sort of like nudged into position by Nancy Sherlock, who was at the controls, and she basically put him in a position so that he could push those antennas shut into their latching mechanism. Wow. Uh, but you know they were successful. The robotic manipulator system was um, actually equipped for this mission with an electrical connector that was meant to recharge the satellite's batteries with the orbiter power. But it was installed upside down. And uh, so, yeah, 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And I think that I don't know how many times we've talked about these sorts of things happening, but it seems that uh, installing stuff upside down is just uh, something that occasionally happens in spaceflight. So, yeah, no power for Eureka. I don't know how necessary that was because obviously it was being brought back to Earth, but there might have been some onboard experiments that needed power uh, during that time. But of course, you had to disconnect Canadarm before you close the bay doors and all of that. So hmm. uh, I think it was meant to, to recharge the battery just enough to get it back down. And I don't know how long the batteries last. I,
1: I wonder if they had some volatile memory that they wanted to be able to preserve or something.
0: Oh, maybe. Yeah, that could be it too. So once they had uh, gotten that done, Low and Wizoff did a little bit of, I guess, practicing for Hubble. They actually took turns in the foot restraint. I'm envisioning they would like grab one another and just like move them around because this was the idea. So they had to gain practice handling very large massive objects um, in zero G. And so they just use each other as, you know, that mass simulator. So so they would put like one guy in the foot restraint and then the other would just kind of like, you know, like grab his buddy and like move him around uh, and see how the RMS, you know, dealt with that. So I thought that was kind of funny because I can, you know, just see two astronauts kind of uh, manhandling each other This it's just kind of funny to me. <laughs> um, they also practice work with various tools. This was, again, to get some experience for the Hubble servicing mission, which would be STS-61. At this point in the shell's history, I don't suppose they did a whole lot of work that would be nearly as demanding as a Hubble servicing mission. So I think that they just wanted to, you know, gain some experience. Most importantly, to see how this worked with Canadarm, um, because uh, that's what they were going to be attached to the whole time.
1: I have an answer on the power. So um Eureka was uh planned to fly uh I believe five times in total, or it might have been five times after this first flight. Um I, I think it was five times in total. It was five they, times they, total. They, yeah. yeah, okay. So this wasn't supposed to be its only flight. So it needed to be able to be reflown. And the the thing is that some of the instruments on board um needed to maintain a specific temperature and they had uh a passive thermal control, but I think the bulk of the thermal control was done uh, with the active system, which I think was a pretty similar um, ammonia loop to what we see on ISS. Mm-hmm. But that, that loop needed to be powered in order to make sure that the instruments would be they wouldn't be taken out of their their required temperature ranges. And since they needed to be able to refly or they wanted to be able to refly this thing, that's why they wanted to be able to keep it powered on the way down.
0: If they lost power, are you saying that the instruments themselves would have been permanently damaged or I, I don't
1: I don't think you can say would certainly be irrevocably damaged it's just they weren't they were designed to have a certain operational limit Mm -hmm. and they wanted to stay within that so they didn't potentially damage them um, I, don't, I don't know how, how certain it was that they were going to, you know, the, the thing wasn't going to explode or anything, but...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a shame that, that they never, you know, were able to refly it. Um, but it is kind of neat that they did get that information about or that they took it out of the museum in 2016. I don't know why they waited so long. There must have been some reason there. I'm not sure why. But they had it hanging in a museum and then they just decided finally to, you know, take a closer look at it. And uh, they found uh, lots of little pits and craters in there and, uh, you know, had an idea of what it's like to be in space for a year. Or I I think it was 11 months, so close enough.
1: Or, or specifically to have been in space in in the early 90s, which is yeah. a kind, you know, actually more helpful to know.
0: Yeah, because I mean, doing a. Doing an inspection on the ground, I imagine, must be much more thorough than doing it in space because obviously you can look at something, you know, like the ISS, which has been up there for many years. But you can't quite get, you know, like you can't do the same kinds of, you know, examinations and take samples the same way or whatever. I guess you could. I don't know. So, yeah, it's actually one of the few satellites that have ever been brought back down. I don't know what the other ones are. Um, I mean, we've discussed some of them, but it's only a handful, really. Yeah, so uh, those are the highlights. Those are the highlights of STS-57. Aboard Endeavor. So that's a cool little shuttle mission back in the day.
1: Yeah. And the, you know, my, my personal highlight is fair and there, there's going to be a link in the show notes. It's pretty cool looking. Like, even if you don't know what it is, like, I think anybody would see this video and go, Ooh, that's pretty cool. What's going on there? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm glad my instincts. Uh, for liquids floating around in space (laughs) in uh, giant transparent spheres is uh, finely calibrated.
0: (laughs) So there you have it. And uh, so let's move on to next week. So the date range for next week uh, is the 22nd through the 28th of June. And Ben, do you have a clue for us?
1: I do. Next week in 1992, it's good to be home. I'm glad I packed
0: an extra lunch. So that's a... A bit of an ironical clue, right? It's good to be home. Glad I packed an extra lunch.
1: I, I think I think this one's gonna be pretty easy, but we'll we'll see how we'll see how we do.
0: All right. Well, that's the clue. And if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this SF and good luck.
1: Good luck, everybody.
0: Okay. And let's do two upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, both of them launches, so that's cool.
1: Yeah. Well, the first one's really exciting. It is Shenzhou 12, flying on along March 2F. So don't let the name fool you uh this is a first in that it is the first crewed flight uh to the large modular space station Th- this is so cool like i yeah. uh, i love uh space stations um no matter what country they're coming from uh so um yeah the the number is kind of fun cuz there have been some uncrewed shenjos i believe um so this is the 7th The seventh crewed Shenzhou, but it's Shenzhou 12 and it's the first one to go to the space station. So (laughs) it's kind of fun. We're a little uncertain uh, about the about how solid the launch date is. There was a a rumor from Andrew Jones posted on Twitter uh, way back in April, and he said that it was uh, unverified. But uh, we might be seeing Shenzhou 12 flying as soon as Thursday, uh, the 17th. That would be really cool. Um, we don't know what time. We don't know if this is actually going to fly. Uh, but it's worth uh, pointing out because it's it's uh, yeah a notable mission, um, and uh, that'll be flying from Jiuquan uh, as per usual.
0: Yeah, we'll just have to wait for confirmation that all went according to plan, because uh, that's yeah. about as much as you're going to find out.
1: That That's Chinese space.
0: <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, and then on the 17th, we do have a date for the next launch. Um, on June 17th is a Falcon 9, and that is launching GPS-3 SV-05. So this is the fifth third-generation navigation satellite, so I guess that explains the... 5 in S in SV05 and the 3 in GPS3 third generation.
1: Yeah, but believe it or not SV stands for space vehicle. So it's, it's like a, it's like a serial number.
0: Yep. So, you know, just another GPS satellite, but I love those because I like knowing where I am when I'm driving. Uh, very important. So that has a launch window on the 17th from 1609 through 1624 UTC, which is, um, 1209 through 1224 on the East Coast. That'll be launching from Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral as usual. So very cool Falcon Eye launch.
1: All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: All right. With those two events, I think we should deal with the show. And so we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: Uh, Dennis had to step out, so I'm going to go ahead and read his line. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
0: And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources
1: for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies
0: and you can join our discord for free during social distancing check out our twitter or reddit for links uh, we're orbital podcast on both and you can directly talk to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com with that we will see you next time on orbit until then later bye everybody.